The Stream of Time. My name is Elliot, and I've been studying the history of Western civilization for years. It's something I have a tremendous love for, and anyone who knows me knows that I love talking about it. I love to share my passion as much as I can, so the next logical step to share it on a grander scale was to start a podcast. The goal of this podcast is to bring history to as many people as possible in a way that's approachable, interesting, and even fun. In fact, the title of this podcast is from a quote from the Byzantine historian Anna Komnena. The quote bears repeating because I think it captures the essence of why I love history so much and why I feel it is so important to share. The stream of time, irresistible, ever-moving, carries off and bears away all things that come to birth and plunges them into utter darkness, both deeds of no account and deeds which are mighty and worthy of commemoration. The quote is admittedly a bit heavy, but the point the quote is making is the goal I'm shooting for, which is to understand who we are and where we come from. To paint a bigger picture of understanding. The great civil rights leader Martin Luther King said, We are not the makers of history. We are made by history. So in order to understand who we are, we must understand where we come from. And not just us, but others. This episode is a beginning, so I thought a good topic to start off with would be an ending. Specifically, the end of the Western Roman Empire. It's a good topic for more reasons than simply the totally artificial connection to my first podcast. It's a good topic because it's a topic that a lot of people know about, but a lot of people totally misunderstand. It's also a big topic, so I'm splitting it up over the first two episodes. Some things misunderstood about it that I'd like to clarify over the next two episodes include what caused it, who were the major players, the Dramatis Personae? What exactly did it mean for the Western Roman Empire to fall? And what were some lasting repercussions of the fall? The so-called fall happened in 476 AD with the deposition of the last Roman Emperor, Romulus Augustulus, an emperor who so faded into obscurity that we don't even know the date of his death. But in order to understand our story better, we're going to need to go a few centuries back to the reign of Marcus Aurelius the last of the five great emperors. His reign lasted from 161 to 180 AD. By the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the Roman Empire was flourishing. In fact, the height of the Roman Empire was most definitely in the 2nd century AD, under the aforementioned five great emperors, who were, in order, Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius, and Marcus Aurelius. By this point in time, the Roman Empire extended from England in the northwest to modern-day Egypt in the southeast, and everything in between. The empire completely surrounded the Mediterranean, and in fact they called it Mare Nostrum, which means Our Sea. But also by the time of Marcus Aurelius's reign, problems were starting to arise in the empire. Two problems in particular were disastrous for the empire. The first problem was plague. The Antonine Plague was probably introduced to the Empire in the years 165 to 166 after some Roman soldiers brought it back from a siege of the city of Seleucia in modern-day Iraq. We can't be sure where it came from before that, but there are records that the plague had actually been as far east as Han, China, before it made it to the Roman Empire. We also aren't sure what type of disease it was, but some suggestions have been that it was smallpox, measles, or both smallpox and measles, two diseases that Europe had not been previously exposed to, and against which it had no defense. 
As mentioned, the plague was devastating. At its height, it was killing thousands of people per day. It claimed the life of Marcus Aurelius's co-emperor Lucius Verus, after whose family it is named. And it eventually claimed the life of the philosopher emperor himself, Marcus Aurelius. I should note, we are told that he went out as stoically and nobly as he lived, as among his final words were, Weep not for me, think rather of the pestilence and the deaths of so many others. The Western Roman Empire never really recovered from this massive depopulation. We have lived in a world that has seen consistent population increase for years, so it's difficult for us to visualize the effect of depopulation. Simply put, there weren't enough people to do everything that needed to be done. Fewer farmers meant less food to go around. Fewer soldiers meant legions were left far under the size necessary for the defense of the empire. And in fact, it is from this point on that the empire which had been growing for centuries begins to shrink, and even at some points, split. While I am getting a bit ahead of myself, I wanted to emphasize the point here. Depopulation due to the plague had tremendous consequences that would be felt for centuries. I mentioned two big problems that emerged during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. The first was plague. The second was the increase in tensions with Germanic tribes in the north. Again, I need to go back a bit to explain what's going on here. I promise this is the last time I'll do this. I don't like flashbacks within flashbacks as much as you probably don't. Rome had never conquered the Germanic areas to the north. While there had been attempts to conquer the Germanic areas, the Battle of Teutoburg Forest in 9 AD pretty much put a complete halt to the advancement in Germanic areas. I won't go into too much detail in the battle. It would make for a great future podcast, actually. But suffice to say, a large Roman force led by the incompetent general Quintilius Varus was led into a crushing ambush by a Germanic tribe leader named Arminius, who had been pretending to be allied with the Romans. I hate to overuse the word devastating in this episode, but it's the only way to describe the Battle of Teutoburg Forest from the point of view of the Romans. Three Roman legions were almost completely wiped out, out of about 28 total legions in the empire. We don't know exactly how many Roman soldiers were killed, but estimates range from 20,000 to 36,000. The losses were tangible, but the larger consequence of the battle was psychological. The Emperor Augustus was genuinely freaked out by the whole thing. He fired his Germanic barbers, seriously, and was heard sometimes yelling in his sleep, Varus, give me back my legions. The psychological effect was so strong that this effectively stopped Roman expansion into Germanic territories for good, and left the Germanic areas to be governed by various Germanic tribes, or confederations of Germanic tribes. That brings us back to the reign of Marcus Aurelius. Early in his reign, we start to see a shift in the Germanic tribes. There's a little bit of domino effect happening here, as the tribes of the Goths, who had been habitating in modern-day Poland, began migrating southward which put pressure on other tribes to move, eventually pushing up against Roman borders. This resulted in a set of wars, the Marcomannic Wars, that lasted for the better part of Marcus Aurelius's reign. We'll hear more about the Goths in a bit, but for now, what we're seeing here is a hint of what's to come for the Roman Empire. The problem of Germanic tribes putting pressure on the borders is only going to get worse for the Roman Empire. The death of the Emperor Marcus Aurelius also marked the beginning of political problems. His son is memorable only for what a terrible emperor he was, and of course, for his portrayal by Joaquin Phoenix in the movie Gladiator. 
After a few more totally forgettable emperors, we end up with the Emperor Septimius Severus. This emperor managed to bring stability to the Roman Empire, but at a cost. Literally. In order to ensure loyalty of the legions, he increased the pay of the armies dramatically. This worked in the short term, but it created a dangerous precedent for later emperors. Emperors were often pressured by the army to increase army pay to unrealistic or impossible levels that ultimately led to economic problems such as inflation and or recession. And so the stage is set for what historians call the crisis of the third century. You can see how complicated the situation was since the best word historians could come up with to describe it is simply crisis. So let's take a second to keep score here because it's easier to understand what comes next if you understand the combination of factors working together here. First of all, the empire is suffering a long-term population shortage. Second of all, Germanic tribes are beginning to push up against the northern borders with increasing pressure. Third of all, finance is becoming a big issue. What ends up happening over the course of the third century is that all of these factors exacerbate each other and cause political instability. We get a string of emperors assassinated. In fact, over just a 50-year period in the middle of the century, there are 26 claimants to the throne of emperor. Contrast that with the whole hundred years of the second century, where there were a mere 10 emperors. Even worse, some of these quote-unquote emperors carved out areas of the empire for themselves. At certain points of the second century, the Roman Empire was divided up into three pieces, all controlled nominally by their own quote-unquote emperor. Remember the Goths? By the mid-3rd century, the Goths were beginning to cross over the borders of the Roman Empire. Whereas before they were a problem because they pushed other Germanic tribes into the Roman borders, now they themselves were becoming a problem. One emperor fell in battle against the Goths. An emperor falling in battle was unprecedented, and is a good sign of how bad things were getting. As if all this wasn't bad enough, yet another existential threat cropped up in the 3rd century. The eastern borders of the Roman Empire had always been somewhat contentious, as the Romans often battled over key areas such as Mesopotamia with the Parthians, who habitated east of the Roman borders. Despite the similarity in name, the Parthians were not Persians. They had taken those areas from the Persian Achaemenid Empire centuries earlier. The Parthians were a problem for the Roman Empire, but never a serious problem. While they did manage to win some crushing victories against the Romans over the centuries, they were generally more of a nuisance than a serious threat. In the 3rd century, the Parthians were defeated by a Persian force, the Sassanids. The Sassanids were far more organized and driven than the Parthians were, and hostilities with Rome burned high during this century. Yet another Roman emperor, Valerian, was caught by the Sassanids in battle. We have differing accounts of what happened to Valerian ranging from he was let go, too. He ended up getting skinned and his body filled with straw so it could be used as a trophy to the Sassanid Emperor Shapur I. I tend to believe the former, but regardless of what happened to Valerian, the Sassanids were a clear problem for the Romans. If all this sounds chaotic, that's because it was. All of these problems compounded each other. Any one of them would have been a serious problem, but with all of these problems coming on at the same time, at a time when the Roman Empire was depopulated, the reigning emperors simply could not effectively handle all of these problems. 
The armies couldn't be everywhere, and the fact that emperors were consistently getting assassinated by their own troops didn't help matters. It would take something dramatically different to fix the problems facing the empire. It would take someone completely thinking outside of the box. That someone is Diocletian. I like to joke that Diocletian is my favorite cabbage farmer because he retired to go farm cabbage. But the fact that he did retire, the only emperor ever to retire of his own will, says a lot about this man and the duty he felt to stabilizing the empire. What he did was recognize that one person headquartered in one location couldn't run the whole empire. He didn't even think two people could run the empire. He created the Tetrarchy, the rule of four. He divided the Roman Empire into four parts that roughly corresponded to a northwest sector, southwest sector, northeast sector, and southeast sector. He then appointed three co-emperors to rule those areas with him. Two would be junior emperors, and two would be senior emperors, with Diocletian himself being the senior senior emperor. The idea was that eventually the two senior emperors would abdicate the throne, the junior emperors would take those spots, and appoint two new junior emperors to take their former spots. He also wanted to avoid dynastic issues that would often crop up, so part of this plan was to avoid dynasties and have emperors appoint new emperors based on merit, not family ties. He even took steps to make sure the emperors kept their word and took some family members as hostage. One of these hostages was the son of the junior emperor in the northeast, Constantius. The fact that this hostage was Constantine, who later became the sole emperor of the whole empire, should tell you how long the Tetrarchy ended up lasting. Setting up the Tetrarchy wasn't the only thing Diocletian did. He also began political and military reforms that Constantine would continue later during his own reign. These reforms separated political power from military power and made it harder for provincial governors to use an army to take power. They also set up the army in a way that could better handle barbarian incursions into the empire without having to move large legions around. The strategic theory at play here was defense in depth, and the basic idea was that there would be a first line of defense that would slow a threat down, which would give a reasonably close second line of defense time to move to the threatened position. Diocletian retired after about 20 years on the throne. As I hinted, the Tetrarchy fell apart pretty much immediately after his abdication, and resulted in a messy civil war among the emperors who were left. Constantine came out on top, and by 325 was the sole ruler of the whole Roman Empire. So the Tetrarchy didn't last, and there was civil war, but once that settled, Diocletian's and Constantine's reforms were effectively a reset button for the empire. This is a good stopping point for this episode, but I wanted to address one more thing before the next episode. If you know anything about Constantine, you might be wondering if I'm going to talk about his conversion to Christianity. This was an important event in history, but it didn't contribute to the downfall of the Roman Empire. The idea that the Roman Empire's adoption of Christianity as a state religion contributed to the downfall of the Roman Empire was put forward by the 18th century historian Edward Gibbon, who wrote the seminal work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon lived smack dab in the middle of the Enlightenment period, in which many philosophers began questioning religion, and by extension, Christianity. In other words, downplaying religion was popular during the time that Edward Gibbon lived. The history of Christianity is a fascinating topic in itself that I will be tackling eventually. 
But for this discussion, it's enough to know that Christianity was not the cause of the downfall of the Roman Empire. That's a wrap for this episode. Tune in next time for the dramatic conclusion to the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Thanks for listening to The Stream of Time, and don't forget to subscribe!